After a week off last week with our all-age service, we're back this week in, in Genesis, these early chapters of Genesis that we've been looking at. So I'd ask you to turn with me to Genesis 4, the passage which Anna read for us earlier. Very, very briefly, a reminder of what we've learned in these opening chapters of Genesis. In chapter one, we learned about the wonderful world that God had created. God simply spoke the word and this world and all that's in it came into being. And it was all beautiful. It was all very, very good. In chapter two, we learned about the privileged positions of human beings in this created order that God has made. God has made us in his image, we, we learned there. He's made us to know him and to represent him in this world. And we learned as well that God doesn't want us to be alone. So he gave us the gift of each other. In chapter three, the biblical account, if you remember back a fortnight, the biblical account takes a dramatic turn for the worse. We learned there of how Satan entered the world, this wonderful world that God had created, and how the man and the woman responded to his temptation. They did that by, by breaking faith with their loving creator, God. They chose to disobey God, and, and they chose instead to make their own way in the world, independent of him. As we were looking at that chapter, we immediately recognized some of the, the tragic consequences of Adam and Eve's rebellion. They were thrown out of the garden of God's perfect presence. And if you remember, at the very end of chapter 3, we're giving a, given a, very, a very stark picture. Cherubim with flaming swords are placed at the gate of the garden, and they're placed there to make sure that the man and the woman cannot re-enter, that they can't get back into this place of God's perfect presence. So it's a, chapter 3 of Genesis is one of the, the most depressing and discouraging pieces of, of God's word. Whenever we read chapter 3 a couple, couple of weeks ago, I skipped over verses 14 to 19, where the serpent and the woman and the man must face the judgment of God. And I'm going to take just a couple of minutes as we start this evening or this morning to, to have a quick look at those. If you turn with me to chapter 3 and verse 14, we see there that God curses the serpent because of what he's done. Reading on from verse 14 to 15, it becomes clear that, in fact, God's cursing Satan, who stands behind the serpent. And in the latter half of verse 15, we get a, a hint of a promise of a Messiah. He'll be the offspring of a woman, and he'll crush Satan's head. Of course, it would be many centuries would pass before Jesus came on the scene and fulfilled the, this promise that we have here and he would finally defeat Satan. By the way, I want you to, to notice something in passing here. In chapter 3, verse 14, God curses the serpent. It's something that God never does to human beings collectively. He never, ever curses humanity. No matter how far from him we, we roam, and no matter how much we act in rebellion against him, he does not curse us collectively. There's always room for those who will to live under God's blessing. Look down with me there quickly at verse 16, and we see there the judgment that falls on the woman. 
as a result of her turning away from God, she'll suffer pain in childbirth. This is quite a strange passage and and probably quite hard to understand. But the impression here is that before the fall, there may not have been pain in childbirth, that physical pain wouldn't have played such a large part in human life as it now does. So that's, that's one of the, the curses of this fall from God's presence that human beings are going to experience. The, the second part of it there, the woman is told that from this day on, she's going to be frustrated in her natural relationships, particularly in her relationship with her husband. Whenever we looked at this stuff together, particularly from chapter 2, we realized that God's intention for men and for women is a wonderful close-knit intimacy. No barriers and no boundaries between them. In our marriage vows these days, we talk about to love and to cherish. And that really is what God had in mind when he created men and women. But here in the curse, not not the curse, the, the judgment of God that falls on them, we see that God is giving over the man and the woman to their natural urges, their, their passions and their desires, to desire and to domination. The, the battle of the sexes, if you like, begins just here. Look at what God actually says. He says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. The woman desires her husband. Now that, that word used there might refer to, to sexual desire, but it's actually more likely to refer to something else. It probably means that the woman here desires to take control over her husband. Now, just to to demonstrate to you that this is the case, the same phrase is used in chapter 4 and verse 7. God warns Cain there of the power of sinful desires. Sin desires to have you. Sin, if you like, desires control over Cain. And we're going to come to that in just a moment. That's the phrase that's used here when it talks about the woman's desire for her husband. Could it be possible that women would ever desire to to have control over their husbands? I imagine that 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 maybe is possible, that that's maybe one expression of the fall. But there's an expression here on the male side that will ring very true to us as well. He will rule over you. The man here, he's going to move from this this position of of openness and intimacy with the woman to a position where he he uses probably his physical superiority to dominate. And surely that is the history of male and female relationships, that that men often have have suppressed women and have, have kept them down. At the fall, both sexes have lost their ability to stand before one another vulnerable and open in pure love and in pure intimacy. Both of them are given over to their natural urges and both of them are are wanting to manipulate and to control each other. As I say, I think that's a pretty honest assessment of how a lot of marriage relationships play out and even the best marriages will have elements of those dynamics in them. Verse 17 turns specifically and passes a judgment on the man. The man's judgment 
here is, is all in relation to the ground. If you remember that the man came from the ground, and here his judgment that God puts on him is all in relation to the ground, instead of ruling the ground and finding it easy to do that as God had intended, the man is going to struggle every day of his life to subdue the ground and to bring forth what he needs from the ground, the the crops and resources that he needs. And in the end, in a way this is sort of bringing a climax to all of these judgments, in the end the ground will rule a man because it will swallow him up and he'll go to his grave. Look at verse 19. For dust you are and to dust you will return. That'll ring a bell with anyone who's ever stood at a graveside and seen a human body buried. The final outcome of all, all of the fall is death. That the lives that God has given us, which were intended to be eternal, must be terminated. Our physical lives end. Friends, that's, that's all I want to say really about those passages. I did want to come back to them because I promised I would do so. Just in summary, though, Genesis 3, it's impossible to read Genesis 3 and ever underestimate the consequences of sin. Sin results in, first of all, our separation from God, and we thought about that a fortnight ago. It brings pain and distress to the whole natural order, and it causes massive damage to our human relationships. There isn't an area of human life that isn't tainted and damaged by our sinfulness. As I say, two weeks ago, we looked at the breakdown of our relationship with God, and today we're going to focus a little bit more on on our breakdown in our relationships with one another in chapter 4. So let's let's move forward to chapter 4. I'll deal with this pretty quickly. Chapter 4 is actually made up of two scenes, and Anna read the first one for us, the one regarding Cain and Abel. There's another scene later in the chapter. I would like to have had time to come to it, but I don't think I really do. All I can say is that it just shows a massive escalation in violence. The character Lamech that you read about at the end of chapter 4, he sounds to me like a guy who wouldn't be out of place in, in paramilitary circles. When you listen to the language of his song there at the end of the chapter, it's all, it's all sheer violence and, and bravado. It's, it's, it's awful, really, to read it. We're not going to deal with that this morning, but we are going to look very quickly at the Cain and Abel story. A lot of us will remember the story of Cain and Abel from Sunday school. These two are the sons of Adam and Eve, and we're going to pick up very quickly in chapter 4, verse 2. Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he didn't look with favor. Okay, we need to slow down here and try and work out what's going on. It's a little bit like what we had to do, if you remember when we looked in chapter 3 at Eve taking the piece of fruit from the tree, I tried to encourage you not to think of that as God being annoyed because they'd taken a piece of fruit from a tree. What's actually going on here? The question here that we need to address is, why 
is God accepting one offering and not the other? Well, if you read commentaries in this passage, there's a massive variety of reasons given why God rejects Cain's offering. Is it because Cain's lacking faith? Well, it could be, but the, the story doesn't tell us that. Is it because there's no blood in his sacrifice? And we know later on in the Bible that, that sacrifice and the shedding of blood becomes important. Is that the problem here? Is it because God likes shepherds better than gardeners? As you see, there are lots of different explanations. I could go on, but that's enough to give you some idea of the suggestions that people make. I prefer to understand this by the evidence that's already in the passage before us. Have another look at the narrator's carefully chosen words in verses 3 and 4. Cain, we read, brought some of the fruits of the soil. So there's no indication here that these are the first of the fruits of the soil or that they're the best of the fruits of the soil. They're just some. Some of what he's grown in his farming work he brings as an offering to the Lord. Abel, in contrast, brings the best. He brings the fat of his firstborn. By the way, we would probably, we'd entirely get this wrong because we think of fat as the worst part of the meat. In that culture, the fat was regarded as the best. So what, what we're seeing here is that Abel brings the best part of the best of his flock. Abel is bringing his best to God. Do you see now why, why it is that God is pleased with Abel's offering and not with Cain's? Cain's sin here, if you like, is tokenism. He's going through the motions. He's, he's brought a sacrifice along just like Abel has done. He looks religious just like his brother does, but his heart's not in it. He's doing all of this, and he's doing it to see how little sacrifice he can actually make, how little his worship of God can cost him, how little inconvenience he can have in his life as he worships God. Friends, it's no surprise that God looked on that offering and, and didn't look on it with favor. It seems to me obvious that we have to say that the same is true today, that God's not impressed with this kind of worship that, that Cain brings. He's not impressed when all we're doing is going through the motions. When we're involved in all the outward trappings of Christianity and, and even churchianity, churchiness, God doesn't care how much of that sort of stuff we do, how much of those outward sacrifices we appear to be involved in. The question is, do we love God? Will we give God the thing that he really wants, our allegiance, our, our untainted love? That's, that's what God wants from each one of us. And when we give that, we can be assured as Abel was, of God's favor. Reading on in verse 5, we, we discover there that Cain becomes angry because he, he isn't accepted. And quite often that's the way of it, isn't it? When a person um, it, it realizes that, that they've done wrong and they're not accepted, they add to their sin the sin of anger. And then when God approaches him in verse 6, I find this quite 
quite fascinating. I hadn't really grasped this before. God does this in in a very similar way to the way he does with Adam and Eve. God comes not accusing, but probing, asking questions. They're questions that are designed to allow Cain to confess his failure. God warns Cain of the threat of his sinful character. Do you remember I mentioned this earlier on? It desires to have you. Our our nature will always desire to, to control us, our sinful nature. And God reminds him that if he does what is right, he'll be accepted. The narrator here doesn't tell us about Cain's reply to God's constant probing or his patient probing. Instead, he tells us in verse 8 the shocking account of what, what Cain did. Sometimes, by the way, the Bible does something in its, in its narratives, in its storytelling. It'll take a very massive event and compress it into a sentence. Gives no detail, no idea of how the thing occurred. And in a sense, it does that just to make it seem so stark. And that's what happens here in verse 8. We basically read that Cain invited Abel out into the field and killed him. I don't know about you, but, and we've maybe lost a bit of this because we're, we're taking a few weeks to look at this. If you were reading chapters 1 to 4 of Genesis 10 minutes ago, you would have been reading about the wonderful world that God created. A world where everything was very good. A world where all was love, love between God and love between human beings. Within 10 minutes here, we're reading about the first murder. In the first generation after Adam and Eve, we know that a a, a man has killed his brother. The Bible is very clear here, folks, about what happens when we break our relationship with God. Whenever the relationship with God breaks, our relationships with each other always break. And that's unavoidable. There's actually a logic to it. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. Whenever we live in a world where we accept that God is God, then all of us recognize that we are not God. We're not the ultimate authority. But as soon as we live in a world where we don't believe that anymore, where we break fellowship with God, then every one of us becomes a potential God. Every one of us wants to be God. And that's always going to result in strife and rivalry for every day of our lives. When our relationship with God breaks, our relationships with each other always follow suit. I'm amazed, again, as I read these chapters of the patience and the mercy of God, God would would be well within his rights here just to step in and to wipe Cain out. Do you see what Cain's done here? He has killed a person whom God has created, a person whom God has made in his image to know his love and to love God in return. God loves Abel deeply, and Cain has killed him. But God doesn't just step in and wipe Cain out Again, he comes probing and questioning. The the question there, where is your brother? In verse 9, it's very much like the question that God asked Adam after he had sinned. Where are you? 
He's giving an opportunity here to confess and to admit guilt. If the, if the question here is a little bit like the one God put to Adam and Eve, so is the reply. Adam and Eve, you'll remember, when God asked them uh, about their sin, they came up with evasive answers, excuses, and accused each other and accused God. Well, Cain's a chip off the old block. Like father, like son. He replies here with his well-known answer, his, his ridiculous answer. God's asked him, where's your brother? And he says, I don't know. Yeah, you've just killed him. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Friends, whenever we sin, we always turn to lying. None of us likes to be known when we live this life. So we lie about who we are as well. Just a massive escalation of sin here. For the second time, though, in these these tragic chapters, we read about God meeting out a punishment. And a thing that strikes you as you read this, this punishment that Cain receives, it's entirely appropriate to the sin that he has, has caused, to the sin that he has sinned. Cain chose to alienate himself from God. He chose in particular to alienate himself from his brother, and he did that by killing his brother. So the, the judgment that God passes on him is just that, alienation. Cain is to be separated, separated from God and separated from other people. He's going to be a nomad without home and without security. (coughs) Pardon me. In verse 14, we read about his response to God's judgment. He's afraid. He fears that if he's driven from the land and hidden from God's presence, he'll soon fall prey to those who would kill him. I find this astonishing. Just taking that at face value, Cain speaks of a world where he's worried that not only he has killed somebody, but he's worried that there are other people about the type of who would kill him. How quickly has human culture deteriorated that it's become a murderous society? Well, Cain clearly doesn't know God. He's worried here that he's going to be hidden from God's presence. But he needn't worry because nobody can ever be hidden from God's presence. Being a murderer doesn't put you beyond the presence of God. None of us can escape God's presence. None of us can ever go beyond the place of God's grace. So here God begins to to show wonderful grace to Cain in these awful circumstances. First of all, he promises Cain protection. He says, anyone who kills you will be avenged seven times over. By the way, when it says seven in the Bible, it's always a number that refers to completeness. God is saying, if anyone harms you, they'll be complete they'll be completely avenged. There'll be complete justice in that situation. As well as as that promise, God gives Cain a, a mark, some sort of a tattoo that would act as a sign of God's protection. You know, this is really all that God can do for Cain. He can't do anything more for this guy. Cain won't admit that he's sinned. He won't admit that he needs God's, God's forgiveness. 
So all that God can do in a case like this is protect them from coming to any further harm. And that's, that's what God does. Just as we, we finish this morning, friends, I want to take a couple of minutes to think about this, this story. In this story, we're presented with, with a cycle, if you like, of sin on Cain's part, of the punishment that God must, must pass, and then of God's grace. And that's a, that's a cycle that is entirely common in our human existence. Time and time again, we fallen human beings sin. Time and time again, God, because he's perfect, he must punish that sin. But then he also, because he's a loving God and full of mercy, he also responds towards us in grace. That's a cycle, actually, that we're going to see played out a couple of times in our, our next two Sunday morning services. Friends, you and I, make no mistake about it, each one of us lives in this cycle. You and I sin because we reject God and we hurt those around us. And God is still, as he was with Cain and Abel, he's still a perfect judge and he still punishes sin. But he's a God of love and a God of mercy. And he always responds to our situation with grace. Of course, we, we know how ultimately God has done that for us. It's in sending Jesus into our world to, to take our punishment as, as he died on a cross at Calvary. Just for the last couple of minutes this morning, I want to, I want to explain how this, this grace of God is active in our lives today or can be. This is something I, I love doing. It's something that we're doing on Tuesday nights here at the moment at Christianity Explored, and that is explaining the good news or the gospel, if you like, of Jesus Christ. The good news is basically this. Because Jesus has taken the punishment for my sin, I don't have to. Because Jesus has taken the punishment for your sin, you don't have to. The question that each one of us must come to terms with this morning is whether or not we will accept and live out our lives on the grace of God. We have two choices. The question this morning is whether we'll choose when this life on this earth comes to an end, whether we'll choose to stand before God's judgment throne in heaven on our own terms, carrying our own sin. If we do that, we need to be entirely sure that God's judgment on our sin will fall. The verdict will be passed, and that verdict will be guilty, because each one of us has sinned and stand in that position before God. The sentence will be passed, and that sentence will be eternal separation from God, what the Bible calls hell. That's one way in which we can choose to live and choose to face our death. But there's another way in which we can approach the judgment throne of God, and this is the, the wonderful news of the gospel. We can choose to stand there trusting in Jesus Christ. We can accept that Jesus has already taken the punishment for our sin, and we don't have to. 
Because he's already done that, we can be sure that yes, God's judgment will fall, but it already has fallen on Jesus. There's no doubting in this case what the verdict's going to be. Innocent. We can stand before God, him looking at our lives and saying, innocent, not guilty, is the stamp on our court papers. It's all possible because of the grace of Jesus Christ. Have you accepted God's gracious gift in Jesus? I'd encourage you to to do that and to do that today. Let us pray. Father God, as we read a, a chapter like this in your word, we're struck by the the depravity and the sinfulness that we know and and recognize at the heart of human nature. Lord, we thank you that even in these dire circumstances, you don't reject your people. You don't walk away from us. But Lord, you stay and you wait to work your grace. Lord, we thank you that we have seen that wonderful and final outworking of your grace in Jesus' death on the cross. Lord, help us, each one of us, to recognize that that act of Jesus was for us, that the punishment that he took there was ours. And Lord, we pray that we would be people who open our lives to you, who accept your goodness and your kindness and your grace, and who live a new life, founded and built on the rock that is Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We pray that he would become more and more the foundation on which we live. Amen. Our closing hymn this morning is one of the great hymns of the church and one that reminds us of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Number 427, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, let's stand and thank God for his goodness to us.
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all today and evermore.